If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Whether it's flowers, chocolates or diamond rings, saying I love you has never been easier. But how did our forebears profess their love? And... When it comes to matters of the heart, has much changed down the centuries? In today's episode, Edward Brooke Hitching shares a host of often bizarre and unexpected objects and stories that illustrate the many ways in which humans have expressed their heart's desires down the years. He spoke to Charlotte Hodgman. Why don't we start with perhaps you just telling me a little bit about why you wanted to write this book, kind of where the inspiration came from. My job is always spent collecting stories, you know, interesting things and little things from history that maybe open up a wider period. Curiosities are a good segue into understanding a general period of time or maybe even capturing the interest of someone who might not necessarily think that they're interested in a particular period or artistic movement or whatever. And I just noticed more and more, which is what you're always looking out for, there's a common theme to a lot of the stories that I really loved that I hadn't had an excuse to squeeze into a book and that was love and just as a reader I went looking for a really great 
history of love that sort of focuses on the bizarre and maybe the more sort of forgotten things. I've had my fill currently of, you know, stories of our kings and queens who are pretty much a, a brutal, horrible lot to a T. And I've always loved imposters and quacks and eccentric geniuses. And so it was just using love as an excuse, really, to look for a great sequence, a chain of stories that you could use to trace the idea or the philosophy of love across cultures around the world throughout time and set out to look for differences. But ultimately, and it sounds so cheesy, but it's true, realize just how many similarities there are as well in our approaches of how we've commemorated love, how we've warned about it, how we sort of pined for it and how we've used medicine and magic to try and get more of it. We'll get on to some of these specific objects and things that you kind of found that are included in the book a bit later on. But perhaps firstly, you say that there are a lot of similarities, but how have ideas of love kind of changed over time, do you think? I think what's really interesting is thinking about what the structure of that word of love in your question is. Is it about how it's celebrated socially, about how the rituals and the social structures have applied to it, or how people felt? Does it bear remarkable similarity to passions that we feel today? And you only have to go back right to the sort of beginning in a sense of recorded history. If you look at ancient Sumeria, there's a chapter in the book that looks at very early ancient Sumerian love songs and love poetry and the phrasing how they've written obviously westernized via the translator but the language and the sentence structures they sound exactly like the kind of thing that a sort of a lovelorn teenager would write in his bedroom on his uh, home recording studio today they're all collected there's a brilliant book called everyday life in ancient mesopotamia from 1992 and there are lines this you know from ancient Mesopotamia sleep be gone I want to hold my darling in my arms and when you speak to me you make my heart swell till I could die you know these are all very sort of recognizable themes so you go on from there and we look at how the the Mayan culture sort of celebrated marriages strange traditions and the importance of cocoa in wedding ceremonies and and even more sort of brutal traditions like Lady Jacques who was the wife of King Shield Jaguar pulling a string of obsidian razor blades through her tongue as part of this ritual to allow the couple to speak to their ancestors. And then onwards, you know, to the sort of Georgians having some wonderfully eccentric artistic quirks and into modern day. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Mm. What's the earliest reference to love that you found? Yeah, I thought a really good way to start the book was to try and find the earliest evidence of a kiss. It's obviously impossible to know when the first kiss was, but I just wondered what is the earliest evidence for that kind of thing. And what you normally find is people trace evidence of the embrace in terms of depictions. You go back to these sort of uh, terracotta plaques of Sumeria and quite sort of graphic depictions of physical love. But I found this paper by an anthropologist called Laura Weyrich. She published it in 2017, and she studies the dental bacteria, the microorganisms on the remains of Neanderthal teeth. And what she found was, to her amazement, she recognised one of the bacteria on these the remains of the very last Neanderthals, she recognises being a bacteria in modern teeth. And so she calculated that at some point in history, that microorganism transferred to the mouths of Homo sapiens about 120,000 years ago when it was a period of inbreeding. And her conclusion was that the likely method of transfer was snogging. So that's how far we go back, about 120,000 years. And what about the word love? When do we start using that? I mean, that's a good question, because if you look at things like love poetry has always been a function of artistic output. It's always been there. It's always been incorporated and not just the sort of the songs that I mentioned just before. So I think love has always been a part of the language. It's never taken on drastically different meanings. Although the Sumerians had a fascinating example of how their word for love literally meant marking out land. It was a transactional verb. It was, when I marry this person, how much territory am I going to get with them? And so when you're looking for sort of how long we've used certain things and how many sort of relics of love language there are in modern language, if you take the shape of the heart, for example, I think the earliest example you can find of it drawn in the shape that we use today, that sort of double cordiform, goes back to about 1305 with Giotto. And then it slowly morphs over the next couple of centuries. But before then, it was drawn as a sort of pine cone shape. And the heart wasn't really linked with love. It was linked with the soul. Aristotle believed that the heart was the home of the soul. And then when, in the sort of early medieval period, when we're rediscovering the great works of the ancient authorities, it becomes thought of as the central core of the body's healing power. And then eventually it's linked with love, I think, from about the 10th century onwards. So there's just this gradual progression into how we understand the sort of symbols and words of romance today. And has love always been seen as a positive emotion through history, do you think? You know, we talk about cures for love and things like that. There are several examples of apothecary cures for heartbreak. It's heartbreak that's seen as just an incredibly deleterious 
illness that everyone is desperate for an easy cure for. I mean, if you remember your sort of first devastation when you were a teenager of your puppy dog love being shattered, it was worse than any physical wound you can imagine. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating how throughout the history of medicine, initially there are cures for heartbreak and simultaneously there are huge amounts of promises and you find this in grimoires of magical spells as well, huge promises of how to potions and cures and salves to not only win over someone to be in love with you, but also, of course, to regain your potency. It was a very sort of always been a very valuable thing for a, a quack to offer. So gods and goddesses of love are quite common across all cultures in history. Did any of them at all sort of stand out to you in your research? Yeah, one of my favourite images in the book is of there's a Hindu love god called Manmatha, who is traditionally drawn as a, a young man sitting astride a giant green parrot, and he's firing five arrows that are made of flowers from a bow made of bees. And each of the arrows represents a, a sense, one of the five senses that love overrides. But it's pretty striking to show how early a version of that idea of sort of being hit with the arrows of love is. And then there's, yeah, all around the world, there's Freya, for example, the wife of Odin, who is normally busy sort of running her equivalent of Valhanger, of, of Folkvanger. But she's often found on the terrestrial plane, chasing after her wayward husband, crying tears of red gold in her chariot pulled by cats. But it's something that's common to every culture, this sort of explanation for the forceful nature of love. It had to have some relation with the divine because it's completely overriding, not only of your senses, but your behaviour as well. And what about courtly love? That's something that kind of perhaps we associate with the medieval period. How did that show itself? It's kind of a strange concept in a way, but it is very sort of genteel as well. It's a sort of genre, it sort of blends across society and across art. I suppose the only sort of modern comparison is how you can be completely besotted with a celebrity that you've never met in this kind of parasocial relationship. And so artists and writers would pay tribute to a particular figure of high society, a noblewoman or a queen. Cynically, you might say to curry favour, but really because it can be a sort of pursuit of a lifetime, it was more seen as a great figure of devotion to sort of channel your creative output towards. And so you would devote poems and songs and works of literature to this person through purely out of respectful admiration. And I think one of the best examples of it in a strange way is Dante, who you don't normally associate with that. But when we say Dante, we normally say Beatrice. You know, they're one of those two pairings of names throughout history that are sort of inseparable, like Tristan and Isolde and, uh, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet. But what I found fascinating when looking at Dante and his relationship with courtly love is the fact that he and Beatrice only met twice in their lifetimes, once when they were tiny children at her father's party, and again, when they were teenagers and she's walking down the street with some companions, recognises him, calls out a greeting, and he's so flustered by this that he can't speak and he turns around and runs away. And that was it. But for the rest of his life, you know, she's thought to be the inspiration for the Vita Nuova. She appears as one of the spiritual guides in the Paradiso, showing him the Rosa Celestial, that sort of great sort of higher heaven and the concentric rings of angels. And the fact is that he had this sort of almost incel-like obsession with her without really ever knowing her. She died quite young as well, I think, in her, maybe in her late 20s. And what I loved about that is, I can't remember where, but I came across this mention. One day he has a dream that the Lord of Love appears to Beatrice 
scoops her up in his arms and starts feeding her his burning heart. He has this really powerful vision and he writes it up into a sonnet and sends it to his artist friend saying, what do you think my profound dream means? And clearly he does this a lot and had been driving them crazy because one friend writes back saying, make sure you give your balls a good wash so that the fumes that cause you to spout this kind of nonsense are extinguished and dispersed. So I love tiny little stories like that that kind of give you this new way of just sneaking around the sort of official historical facade and getting a sense of what that person was actually like. Are there any other examples of where, you know, a great love like that has inspired bigger things, Chichero or similar? Yeah, I think you find a lot of medieval manuscripts. There's one I particularly like called The Book of the Night of the Tower. And that was written by a knight who had sort of fought and lived through the Hundred Years' War, an incredibly grizzled, world-weary man who had seen the worst of things. And he wrote this book out of love for his daughters to try and prepare them for the world. It's full of lessons that are told with stories. And they're stories like there are two Byzantine princesses, one is virtuous, one is sinful, and they both have their boyfriends visit to the castle one night. And the boyfriend of the virtuous princess is suddenly filled with visions of holy men in shrouds, and he runs away screaming, and her virtue is preserved. And the boyfriend of the sinful princess has no such problem and has a great night. She falls pregnant, and when her father finds out, he drowns her in a lake and flays the boyfriend alive. So, you know, that's a pretty effective, uh, brutal lesson to sort of take your time with boys. And maybe another great example is it's kind of similar to Dante in a way. There was, I don't think it's ever been published in a book before, but in the sort of late 19th century, there was a hop stealer, a London hop stealer called Henry Hilditch Bulkley Johnson. And he was completely in love with an Irish widow. And his grand plan to win her over was to hand write and illustrate this magnificent manuscript of the two of them taking a magical journey through Ireland together and meeting all these mythical monsters and sphinxes and things like that. And the book's got pages of the illustrations from it, these black pen and ink drawings, because they're so wonderful. And at the end of it, it ends with a very sort of vitriolic critique of the English treatment of the Irish. And it must have worked because the records show that soon after he sent it, they were married in Dublin and lived together for the rest of their lives in London. So that was quite a sort of sweet, unknown story there. And in terms of big gestures of love, obviously the Taj Mahal springs to mind as one very well-known example. What other kind of examples did you find for the book? Yes, so there's the great mosque at Samarkand, which was sort of built for the same reasons as the Taj Mahal, but it has a very unusual feature, which that in its courtyard, it has an enormous, enormous stone lectern that was made to hold a copy of the Quran that I think was owned by Muhammad's nephew. And it was such a sort of holy volume that it was placed on this lectern and anyone wishing to conceive would circle it three times and saying a prayer to Muhammad to wishing for children. And then I suppose in terms of grand gestures, random things pop into my head, like the story from I think the 60s of there was a German millionaire called Gunter Sachs who was attempting to woo the most beautiful woman in the world at that time, Brigitte Bardot. And the way that he did it is that he hired a helicopter to drop tens of thousands of red roses onto her Cote d'Azur property. And she wrote in her autobiography that it's not every day that someone drops thousands of roses on your lawn. 
But again, it worked. <laughs> so I think there are sort of magnificent examples of those kind of tributes. And the point of the book is to collect objects, objects that capture these love stories, because you think just how many sort of grand gestures and declarations of love and strange courtship rituals have completely disappeared and been lost in time. So it's important to find objects, whether it's Welsh love spoons that are extravagantly carved and given to married couples, anything unusual like that, that sort of preserved a love story. And actually one thing, I'm looking at my desk now and I actually have this conch shell, which was from, my father was a rare book dealer. And one of the things he bought 40, 50 years ago was a book written on shell collecting by the wife of Captain Bly, Elizabeth Bly. Our image of Captain Bly is of this incredibly sort of grumpy, intolerant man who was mutinied against by his crew. But the fact is that from all his voyages, he would collect hundreds of seashells for his wife, who was obsessed with collecting them and bring them back. And her collection, which was, I think, the greatest in Europe, was used as the basis to write the first published study on shells. So that shows you another sort of, it's quite a sort of sweet little gesture, but it shows you quite a different side to our sort of common image of Captain Bly. I mean, there are some incredible kind of objects and things that you've included in the book. Have you got a selection of perhaps your favourites that you'd like to kind of draw attention to? I think some things I've always loved are, are little tokens. It's, it's always interesting how some of the smallest remnants of history can carry the biggest stories with them. And there are convict coins, which are sort of very finely engraved metal coins that were given to family members by people who were sentenced to transportation to Australia. And just before they left, they would give them to their families with little rhymes. So there's an example of one saying, this is a token from my hand, for I am going to Van Diemen's land. And then suddenly they're gone and there's no more historical record of that particular person. All that's sort of left of their story is this coin. You can still find them actually on, even on eBay today, of little Georgian inscribed love tokens, just writing someone's name. I've got one in my desk that's just written to Alice in beautiful manuscript. And it just makes your brain sort of start wondering about what that story was. And then, of course, that leads you to, there's a really striking double page showing this array of a Georgian fashion for presenting your lover with a miniature painting of your eye that they could secretly carry around with them or wear proudly on their chest. And that supposedly started with George IV when he was Prince of Wales and obsessed with Maria Fitzherbert. And he sort of pursued her and pursued her and she'd been twice married. She wasn't interested. She was older. He proposed. She fled the country and he writes her a letter and encloses this portrait, little portrait of his eye. And she returns home and they marry. And so, yeah, those are some of my sort of favourite objects. They're sort of small and very sort of innocuous until you sort of dig into their history. I mean, you must have found a lot of traditions that to us now would seem very strange coming as we are from the 21st century. Are there any of those you'd like to, to share? Well, yes, you think about strange traditions and then you look at what we do and you think, is any of this any weirder than severing a bunch of plants and giving them to someone wrapped up in a bow? But yeah, there's a whole variety. I mean, that's an amazing thing I read about at a sort of rural Austrian dances in the 19th century. Women would put a slice of apple under their armpit, dance away until it was good and moist, and then they would present it to the fellow that they had their eye on. And if he reciprocated, he would pop that sweaty bit of apple into his mouth 
delighted at being afforded the opportunity to share in her personal fragrance. And if he had no interest, then back into the baster it went for another round of dancing and she'd give it to someone else. And then alongside that, you can look at Fiji, where there was a tradition to a win over your future father-in-law by presenting him with a whale's tooth. But the trick is the tooth had to been freshly wrenched from a whale's mouth. And in Hindu Balinese society, there's a tradition of when you reach marrying age, you file, men and women file down several of their teeth to sort of flag that up, their availability. But I think the weirdest one I read to do with marriage, I can't remember where I read it, it was ages ago, but it was a report in a German medical weekly called De Arst. And it was in the yes 18th century. The editor of this German paper had uh, holidayed in Corsica and he recorded a, this tradition of when a husband dies, a Corsican widow places his corpse on a blanket and fills it with heavy objects and tools. And then she gathers the other women from the village and together they toss his body up and down on this blanket to see if it will revive him because apparently men were always faking death to get out of marriages. And it did happen. And if he did miraculously regain his senses, then he was left to the mercy of his former widow. What's the oddest thing that you came across? And also I'm kind of interested in how you found some of these objects and stories, because there was a really broad range of things in the book. I mean, this job that I do, and having worked on QI for the last six years, you're always looking for things. I mean, all day, all night, you don't turn it off and you always save them. I've been carrying a box called Interesting Things that I've had since I was a young teenager in the bookshop. And I would just save scraps of things and bits from newspapers, never thinking it would be useful for anything. It just felt like you didn't want them to evaporate. So you'd make a note of anything strange you found. And so much of it became useful for this book. I mean, I love strange stories like the history of hot air balloon weddings, which I'd never sort of read about in other books, because of course, it's not really terrifically important. But I think it's so sweet, this idea that the moment that we start inventing a new piece of technology or transport, we immediately start thinking about how to be silly with it and have fun. I mean, obviously, some of the stranger things in the book, well, I'm definitely not allowed to show on camera. <laughs> a lot of the sort of Pompeian erotica and <laughs> an incredible abundance of, of winged phalluses in different cultures throughout history, sometimes baffling. I mean, those little pilgrim badges that people still find when they're mudlarking, these tiny little tin badges that show... I think in the scholarship they're referred to as ambulant penises and, you know, they're sort of penises and vulvas on ladders and riding horseback and firing bow and arrow and things like that. And we don't really, there's no reference to them in contemporary literature. We don't know what they're for, but the leading theory is that they're sort of either warding off the evil eye because you can't help but laugh when you see them or they're just sort of great little, just as they would be today. You'd sort of buy them at tourist stands when you're on pilgrimage as a sort of cheeky souvenir. That was Edward Brooke Hitching. Edward's most recent book, Love, A Curious History, is on sale now, published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.